Well, I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to resume teaching from 1 Peter chapter 4. So let me open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the privilege we have to be a part of the body of Christ here at Lakeside. Lord, our lives are filled with trials, every one of us. Lord, I'm most familiar with my own trials, but it's simply because that's me and that's what's affecting my daily life. And I pray, Lord, for my mom with her not feeling well and the pain she's in. And I pray for Christine with her illness with the sore throat and things that she would get better quickly and I pray that neither Debbie or I or Rachel would would come down with anything and I pray Lord though for those outside of my own family that are part of my church family I, we think of Kathy Allman today as she's in the hospital on Mother's Day with some serious health issues Lord I pray for wisdom for the doctors for her treatment and Lord I know there are countless other individuals even represented by us in this room who need prayer people who are hurting physically, people who are wayward spiritually. Lord, the needs are endless. But we thank you, Lord, that your grace is endless, that your power is endless, and that you can supply everything that we need and that you have supplied it through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of the trials of living in a fallen world, we can rejoice and celebrate. And Thank you for Dennis being able to rejoice at his daughter's graduation, Lord. These, these small things that are gifts from you that enable us to smile and they brighten our day. And each of us, Lord, despite the hardships, has experienced some of those this week as well. And we say thank you. Lord, as we have the opportunity today in our country, we thank you for moms. Lord, not every person had a, a, a great mom. Not every person had a perfect mom. But you've provided that much of the nurture and comfort that we get comes through our moms. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your way of setting up creation. And we pray that each of us, that our moms are still alive, would be able to honor our mothers today in an appropriate way. And Lord, for those moms who are estranged from their children, I pray that you give them comfort today. pray that you give them peace in their hearts. I pray that you would work reconciliation, because a day like this is a painful reminder. And I pray for those who have lost children. Lord, I think of my mother-in-law. She's facing the first Mother's Day with, without her daughter. But there are moms in this room that are probably experiencing the same thing, and there are many moms in our church that are dealing with that. And I just pray, Lord, for your grace and comfort. We thank you, Lord, that in our weakness... You meet our needs. We would be helpless apart from Christ. And Lord, as we think of the strength that we draw from you, the fact that we can only keep going because of you, we are reminded of those that don't know you, that are still in rebellion against you. And we ask, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. There may be some in this room, there may be some that come to church today that don't know Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that the gospel would penetrate their hearts. Lord, above all else, they need Jesus Christ. And I pray that the gospel would be preached and your spirit would awaken dead hearts so that they could be born again to new life. And Lord, as we turn into your word this morning, I pray that you give me wisdom. Lord, as I approach the text, I know that the truths there transcend my ability to articulate in my words the true depth of meaning. But I pray, Lord, that you would make up 
for my lack and that you would open our ears to hear and our minds to truly comprehend what you have for us. We love you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to continue with our study. And we find ourselves this morning beginning a section that starts at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7 and actually runs to verse 11. As we come here, what I keep reiterating every time I teach, and I keep reiterating it because it helps me remember why is this in the Bible but also hopefully it helps remind you, I think the ultimate purpose of First Peter is to call believers like you and I to live holy lives. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, I've repeated it many times, I'll repeat it again. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior... Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this book was written to believers who had difficulties. They had hard lives. Many of them had miserable existences from a what we would call a work perspective. Many of them were slaves. They didn't have any rights. Many of them were subjected to mistreatment by the government, which was not godly. Many of them had difficult home lives. They had bad relationships, husband and wife conflicts. The problems were legion for these believers. Add to it that the world around them did not like them. And quite often, many of these believers, even when they did the right thing and were obedient to the Lord, they suffered. Doing the right thing for Christ didn't make their life better in an earthly sense. In fact, it invited scorn and rebuke and hardship. But through it all, Peter consistently exhorts them to follow Christ. He points over and over to Christ's example, what Christ did, who Christ is. And no matter the circumstances of life, no matter if your relationships are bad or if the work life is bad or if the government life is bad, or if you're being subjected to ridicule or hostility, whatever the case, press on. We have a hope in heaven. I've said it many times in the context of some of the teaching. Jesus wins, so we win. So we can keep pressing forward. Peter wants us, because the Lord wants us, to be a light in darkness. Yes, the world is dark. Yes, the world is falling apart. We are light to that fallen world. And so Peter lays out a lot of theology in chapter 1, culminating in be holy as I am holy. Chapter 2, he deals with those relationships and different things, trying to get us to remember who we are in Christ, what God's called us to do. Now we live a certain way, Christ being the ultimate example. Chapter 3, he reiterates, even if you have a bad marriage or you have problems in your marriage, you keep going. Even if you are subjected to persecution, you keep going. You do the right thing. And if you have any of the tendencies of most of us that say, wait a minute, that's not fair. He says it doesn't matter. For example, 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. 
In other words, we don't get to play by the rules of the world. What do the rules of the world say? You get mistreated, you mistreat back. You stand your ground. That's not the example of Jesus. When he was abused, he didn't abuse back. When he was slandered, he didn't slander back. He kept entrusting himself to God. That's what we do, press forward in holiness. And ultimately, in chapter 3, he again, he points out at the end, and there were some obscure references that I won't go through all of them again. The ultimate point, though, is that Jesus is the perfect example for us. He died a real physical death, but he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And one day, everything's going to be set straight. And chapter 4 is really along the lines of because Jesus died and rose again and because he's the ultimate victor, now what do we do? Now, he's given examples throughout the book, so it's not the first time he said that, but really what I see over and over is this pattern is he tells us truth, he tells us what to hang our hat on, and then he says, now live differently. Now act this way. And that's what chapter 4 is. Follow along with me. I'm going to read the first six verses. This is what I taught last time. I'm just going to read the verses because they set the table for our verses this morning. But in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because see who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. In other words, he's just saying that, look, you're done with that old life. You used to be in bondage to sin. You used to be enslaved to sin. No more. Christ is taking care of that. So as long as you are living and breathing, and everybody in the room right now is living and breathing, this applies to us. You live for God's will. Stop thinking about what those lustful desires that used to enslave you, that's gone. You know Christ. You're not bound by that. Now you can move forward. Verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And all of this, and I taught in detail, you can go back and listen to it, but all of this is really just saying, look, don't go back to what you used to. I read a proverb about a dog returning to its vomit. Stay away from that. Don't do it. Don't worry about the unbelievers. God will take care of them. They'll either come to faith in which their sins are forgiven, or else one day they'll stand and give an account to God. So don't get caught up in, well, that's not fair. Look what they're doing. They're mocking you because you heap guilt on their head because they know in their heart because of the fact that they have the image of God imprinted in them. Romans 1, they know these things. They're running from it. And he's even saying in that last verse, again, it can look a little unusual in verse 6, but really he's just saying, look, the people who have already died in Christ have hope. So what it all comes down to is he's trying to get us 
to focus on Christ and ignore the distractions of our former sinful selves that still whisper and say, come on back. And he's trying to get us to ignore those sinful external influences and those people that say, why are you living that way? Come join us. It's just vivid imagery in my mind of a parade of excess and debauchery going down that wide path that everybody's on. And he's saying, don't look over there. You're on the narrow path. You stay over here. And that sets the table for what is going to be over the next couple of two to three weeks, exhortations about how we interact with each other. Over and over, he's been teaching us how do we interact with the world. If you think about it, if you were to go back, most of what we've talked about, although there's been specific things that apply to the church, but a lot of what we've been teaching is how do you interact with the world? How do you interact with those who are harassing you and slandering you? How do you interact with those who are trying to entice you to come into sin? How do you interact with those unreasonable bosses who make your life miserable? How do you interact with the government that's off the rails but God says submit anyway? How do you interact when you have a bad marriage and all these things, but now in these few verses... There's going to be some strong exhortations about how we live together. It's a sense in which it's telling us something about how we should be doing church. But it goes beyond that because we're only together for a couple hours at church. This transcends that. In fact, one of the reasons I was impressed upon is that I need to get a roster going because I realize a lack of organization can hinder what we're going to be called to do. And I praise the Lord that I think Lakeside does many of these things well. But this isn't a general teaching to the church. It's individual teaching to each one of us of how we do these things. And while we can look at other people doing these things well and say that's wonderful and it is, the question for us is are we looking in the mirror or are we doing these things? Now I'm going to read this section. And when I was started working on the message yesterday... I thought I was going to cover one verse. I thought I was going to cover verse 7. But it would set the table for everything. And then when I stopped typing last night at around 9 o'clock, I realized I'm doing half a verse. So I didn't get past a half a verse. But it's an important half a verse. But I'm going to read this section, and you can already start, and you'll hear things, and you can already see how it's going to be applying to our lives. And then I'm going to come back, and I'm just going to deal with what I'm going to teach in a little bit more depth today. So follow along with me. I'm going to read from verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4 all the way to verse 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. 
So as I tried to outline this, I think all of this could be summarized along the lines of this. It's preparing yourself for holiness. Preparing yourself for holiness. I think that's what verse 7 is focusing on. And that's what I, I want to emphasize today. I trust that we all want to be holy. I know each one of us sins. And if your heart is right with God, you hate that you sin. And you regret it when you sin, sometimes not as quickly as you should. I've shared it before that I remember a funeral message that John MacArthur delivered for the man that steered me to the Master's Seminary, Mark Pemberthy, and I wanted to be in heaven immediately because he talked about the fact that there's no more struggle against sin. That struggle is tiring. And I know you want to be holy, even when you don't want to be holy from the flesh standpoint, you want to do the will of God. So this is things we can learn to prepare us for that lifelong pursuit. So here's the first point, preparing yourself for holiness. Remember the return of Christ. Remember the return of Christ. Verse 7 begins with a simple statement. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. If I showed you how I study, I print out the verses, wide space, and I go through with a pencil and I'm making notes to myself. And I'm writing questions and I'm looking at the text and I'm wondering, is this mean? How does this reference together? I almost overlooked this. I was jumping to the end of the verse talking about certain things and talking about prayer and then I think that's an easy way for us all to be convicted, talk about prayer. I was jumping over there. And then as I'm studying and as I'm thinking, I come to this first. The end of all things is near. And it struck me. Because it's something that intuitively we probably don't even think much about because it doesn't look crazy to us. But this is supposed to be a motivation for substantive Christian behavior. The very next word is therefore. Okay, all this is because. End of all things is near. And I started reflecting. Peter throughout this letter has continually pointed us to the fact that we have a future hope. In other words, the life we are living now, where we're called to be holy as God is holy, where we're called to do all these difficult things, that life, we understand, is not the end. Beginning at the beginning of the book, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, and this is just the introductory part where he's addressing the churches. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
powerful, beautiful truths to obtain an inheritance, forward-looking, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So even as he extols and celebrates the virtue of what God has already done to us in Christ, he's pointing us forward to a day that we don't see yet. A future hope. A future inheritance. When one day we get everything that's been promised to us. And over and over, Peter points to the idea of judgment. To a future time when God will settle all accounts. Both in salvation and rewards and judgment. In 1 Peter 2.12, I've quoted this countless times teaching through 1 Peter. He's talking about our lives amongst the Gentiles being a witness. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, 1 Peter 2.12, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, some people who mock you now will come to faith, and one day they'll be glorifying God with you. But some will see judgment in a different light. That's just what we dealt with in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5. But they will give account, talking about those who are harassing and slandering you and trying to entice you to sin. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter, as he is dealing with the daily realities of living in a fallen world and this overarching principle of be holy as God is holy, is also constantly lifting our eyes above the fray and pointing to a future day. A day when we'll have everything that God promised, but also a day when God will level everything. And I think what Peter is doing at the beginning of verse 7 is reaching down and adding an element of urgency to everything he's talked about. An element of urgency that I missed when I started studying it. An element of urgency that I looked past because I'm so consumed with what am I supposed to do. The end of all things is near. Now the end here is not referring to our death. We're all dying. We understand that. If the Lord doesn't intervene and come back soon, all of us will at some point die. That's the nature of having fallen bodies in a sin-cursed world. Peter's not talking about that end. Rather, Peter is talking about the end of redemptive history. There is a story that has played out across human history from the time that God created that will one day be culminated. I read as I was studying a summary that I'm going to paraphrase in my words, but the initial idea came from one of the sources that I was studying. But it was very helpful to me, and I hope it's helpful to you. And it was helping us to see a big picture 
of what is going on in the world. God created the entire world, and it was good, and God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God set up everything. Genesis chapter 3, Satan enticed Eve, who enticed Adam, and chaos reigned. And it's still raining. But as you read the scriptures, and you step back a little bit, what you see was from that moment, God pointed to hope. In Genesis chapter 3:15 there is a reference that is a messianic prophecy. After Adam and Eve sinned, God immediately promised something will help. In 3:15 he says, "And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel." In other words, this reference is talking about the fact that one day Eve's seed would take care of Satan. And that seed was Jesus Christ. In the midst of mankind being cursed, God pointed out that one day Messiah would come. And from that day until Jesus was born in Bethlehem... Everything in human history pointed to what would happen one day. Messiah is coming. The Redeemer's coming. The Savior of Israel is coming. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is coming. And it's almost as though everything that played out in human history the sin, the wickedness, everything, the calling of the nation of Israel. The seed of Abraham, the promises to Abraham, the promises of, to David, everything was pointing to that day that would one day arrive when Jesus came. The Messiah would come. All of history was pointing to a transcendent reality. The chosen one is coming. Micah 5 2. Familiar prophecy. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Looking forward to the one who would come frames everything in history up until Jesus' birth. But Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. And then he died an atoning death. And then as Peter has just emphasized in chapter 3, he didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And the expectation changes. Because you're not looking for when the Messiah will come. You're looking for when the Messiah will return. And that suddenly frames everything else. And from the time that the New Testament was being written, the expectation was the same. Jesus is going to return. In John 14, 3, Jesus himself gave a precious promise. 
Can't even go into all the personal testimony of why this means so much to me. But he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Paul pointed to this reality many times to the believers who were dealing with all kinds of life in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He said, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 15 through verse 18. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are falling asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The fact that Christ is coming back is supposed to encourage us. It's supposed to be a present reality in our lives. That's what Peter's talking about. The end of all things is near. Under the old covenant, everything looked forward to when Messiah would come. Under the new covenant, everything looks forward to his second coming. When all of the struggles will be done. In fact, the entire New Testament, once you get past the book of Acts, when Jesus ascended in chapter 1, is focused on he's going to come back. But here's the issue. And this is why this is so critical to us, and this is why I believe Peter puts this in here. Jesus himself knew that the human tendency of the heart is to get lazy. And so what Jesus said is be ready. Be ready. In Luke chapter 12, and there are many places I could have gone, I just chose to go to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read an extended section from verses 35 to 43. Now it's Jesus teaching through illustrations, but the underlying issue is be ready. Jesus said this, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, our author, Peter said, Lord, Are you addressing this parable to us or everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of the servants to give them the rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. What was the ultimate point? We should be ready for the return of the Lord because we don't know when that will be. 
I think the lesson that Peter learned firsthand at the feet of Jesus that he wouldn't have even fully understood at that time, by the time he wrote this letter, was ingrained in his heart. And it was a motivating factor for his life. The end of all things is near. There is so much truth in that. Part of the truth is that there's nothing else that has to happen. Jesus could return today. He could return today. We believe and teach he will return. His church will be gathered to him. And he will establish a thousand year reign on the earth. The clock has been ticking for 2,000 years. When Peter wrote, the end of all things is near, he was speaking truth from God. That's still the case today. So what's the issue? Jesus said, be ready. I'm coming when you won't expect it. I want to find you doing what I've called you to do. And that's Peter's exhortation to us. So what is the problem? That's simple enough. The end of all things is near. Okay, got it. Be ready. Okay, got it. What's the problem? We're not ready. Because each day Jesus doesn't come, what do we think? He ain't coming today. He wasn't here today. He won't be here tomorrow. I've got a little bit of time. It's interesting because even in Peter's day, there were people, not always within the church, but people that knew what the church was teaching that were basically mocking the whole idea that Jesus is going to come back. For an unbeliever, the mocking is, yeah, I'm going to be judged one day, right? Leave me alone. For the believer, the issue is, are you being a good steward with what God has entrusted to you, living as though today he could return? I was thinking to myself a question, and as I thought of the question, and I'm sure somebody smarter than me has asked the question before, but I realized the answer sets up a trap. So I'm not going to ask you the question, I'm just going to ask it to myself. If you knew the Lord was coming today at 3 o'clock, would you do anything differently? And if the answer is yes, you're not living correctly. That's it. Would you do anything differently if the Lord was going to return this afternoon? If the answer is yes, you're not living right. I'm not living right. We should be living moment by moment with that urgent expectation that He may be here today. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter explained theologically some of the reason for God's delay, but also dealt with this issue that people say, well, he hadn't come, he's not coming, don't worry about it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read an extended section beginning at verse 3 all the way to verse 10. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following after their own lust. Well, that's what he's just been talking about. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fall asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, you keep talking about it, nothing's happening. 
For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Peter is trying to instill a sense of urgency that should come from the reality that all of that is near. Sure, people always mock because it hasn't happened yet. People in the day of the writing of the New Testament were looking forward to Jesus' return and that has happened for 2,000 years. And that would cause some people to say, well, eh, don't worry about it. If it took this long, it's probably going to be longer. The teaching of scriptures don't think that way. Now, Peter's not laying out an exact chronological scale, but his illustration by God's empowerment, it was God's spirit that inspired him to write those words, points for us. It's been 2,000 years. That's two days. The end is near. It's near Every day. And this could be the day. What's interesting is this. Why doesn't he just come? Many times in my heart, once I came to faith, I think about the words of Revelation 22.20. I don't know they're in Revelation 22.20. I look them up, but I think about the words... He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I want Jesus to return today. I really do. Because I'm tired of the battle against sin. Like you, you get tired of watching people suffer and die. And you get tired of seeing the effects of sin that ravages the entire world. And I really do wish the Lord would return. But by the same token, I have to give thanks that he doesn't return because each day he doesn't return is because he's showing mercy on sinners. And he's giving at least one more day for our family and friends to repent and believe. He's giving one more day for people to bow their knee to Jesus Christ before judgment the end of all things is near I have to ask myself do I really believe that am I living that way I have to ask you do you understand the implications of that
we need to have a sense of urgency recognizing that we have been entrusted by God with the message of salvation. We have been given by God, if we are in Christ, certain spiritual gifts, which we will learn in the coming weeks we're supposed to use to serve the body. What are we doing with what the Master has entrusted to us? And are we living like those people that just think it's going to keep going? My parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, it's, we're fine, i got time. My kids or my grandkids or my great-grand... No. The end of all things is near today. It's not supposed to cause us to panic. It's not supposed to cause us to run around and yelling that the world's in. It's just supposed to grip our hearts and cause us to remember that the one to whom we owe everything could show up today and we want to be found faithful. I would be overjoyed if that grips your heart every morning. The end of all things is near. Why did I spend so much time on this? Because I overlooked it. I'm looking ahead to the to-do and forgetting the why. So I pray the Lord will grip each one of our hearts. This may be the last Mother's Day we ever have. And not just because we might die. The end of all things is near. Let's think and worship and live and love accordingly. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive me for my apathy. Lord, throughout Scripture, we see a sense of urgency, but it's easy for us, it's easy for me to lose that. To think that I have tomorrow and the next day and the next week and the next month. But Lord, you could come back today. I pray that you would impress these simple truths upon each one of our hearts. Lord, the truths are simple, but they are utterly profound in ways that my vocabulary struggles to do justice. But I trust your spirit to apply the power of your word to your children's hearts, including my own. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a holy fear and a holy reverence of you such that we would pour our lives' energy into obedience and holiness. And Lord, at those times when we stumble and fall, that we would not wallow in misery, but we would immediately confess our sins to you, who is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, in the coming weeks, Lord willing, if you don't return, we're going to be studying the rest of verse 7 and verse 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, and they have important truths for us about living together in the body of Christ. But Lord, I would ask you to instill in us the urgency in everything. The end of all things is near. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.